You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. If your struggle against sin excuse me, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Redemption Hill kids, uh, ages two through five, and grades one through three. And after they have made their way, you may be seated. You got me? All right. Got the gremlins out. Uh, good morning, Redemption Hill. Just kind of a heads up about where we're headed. Um, we probably have two weeks left in the book of Hebrews. I always hedge, <laughs> um, never knowing exactly where we're headed. Um, but the goal is two weeks, and then we'll get into the book of Genesis. We'll be in Genesis 1 through 11. And uh, there's a lot packed in. There's a lot packed into last week's sermon in terms of the text. Same thing this week, same thing next week and the week after. But um, Lord willing, um, God is using his word to uh, speak to your heart and mind. 
well, as a quick review of where we've been, not, not long, just quick, we have seen throughout the book of Hebrews, I think we've been on this for about a year, that God is greater. God is superior. That's basically chapters 1 through 6. Jesus is greater and superior to the angels, to Moses, to Joshua, to Melchizedek. Also, through Christ, a new covenant has been established. And in the new covenant, that new covenant that Christ has established, we have seen that Jesus is the greater sacrifice. He is the great high priest. He is the better tabernacle and the better temple. I mean, that's just like kind of a quick flyby, but all those themes have, have led us to the front door of Hebrews 11, 12, and 13. Therefore, in light of everything we have seen throughout the book of Hebrews and how great Christ is, a question that kind of we're, we're caused to pursue is how do we respond? How do we respond to all that? How are you going to respond? Today's passage and this sermon are meant to prod you, uh, as we saw two weeks ago, lovingly provoke you uh, from Hebrews with that question. How do you respond? Uh, Yesterday, I got back into the coaching saddle. Um, I I used to coach a lot. Um, I used to coach basketball. And I was subbing for, for Roy. He was coaching and loved it. I loved every moment of it. And, I, and I'm one of those coaches who keeps talking and talking. I talk to the players nonstop. You know? Like I'm running out of, my, my voice is just like crackling by the end. And um, I was thinking about that in relationship to today's sermon. Coaching oftentimes is encouraging, right? You got this. You can do it. Keep going. Keep going. I know it's the fourth quarter. I know you're tired. I know your arms are down here because you're tired. Bring them up. You can do this. Let's go. Let's go. And then it's also challenging them. Come here. Come here. I'll make up a name. Come here, uh, uh, Nina. Come here, Nina. Uh, You're better than this. I know you're better. I know. I see it in you, right? Sometimes coaching's that, and we need that in the Christian life. Sometimes it's building them up, right? It It was so much fun to get back in that. In the Christian life, is that not the case, as we're going to see today, the race that God has placed us on. We need to be challenged. We need to be encouraged. And we need to be built up. And I think you're going to see that, Lord willing, this morning from today's text. So I'm going to pray. I need God's help. And then we'll get into today's message. Heavenly Father, um, I pray for those who are in front of me this morning. Would you use your word to speak into their life and indeed cause change where there needs to be change? Father, I just want to be faithful to what you've already spoken. I want to be faithful to your word. Keep air from my mouth. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. A few weeks ago, while we were looking at Hebrews 10, I referred to the Christian life as a marathon. I think that was probably two to three weeks ago. Endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Life, as you all know, is full of hardship, struggle, and suffering, and joy. Therefore, you need to be encouraged to endure. You do not endure for the sake of endurance. You endure for God 
And for the belief that God has promises that he is going to fulfill. That's why we endure. 1 Corinthians 9 builds out the metaphor of running a marathon, which helps make sense of Hebrews 12. Let me go there. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Least after preaching to, to others, I myself should be disqualified. Right, so you're going to see how this is going to fit neatly, I think, into Hebrews 12. Now, please note the virtues of running this race. Self-control and discipline. The former is a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 23. In Galatians 5 and in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9, the same Greek word is used for self-control. The second virtue indicates that you must run as if you're fighting for your life, but you do it under control. Do not box the air, right? That's nonsense. You look foolish when you start boxing the air. But you run with an end goal of mine. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, you don't run aimlessly, but there is a very specific trajectory. While, while writing this part of my introduction, I knew um, when I was writing that I would be on a treadmill a few hours later. And I've created like modest, very modest exercise goals. Two days prior to writing this, I ran like five miles. And when I, when I say run, I mean like plod, like, you know, and, uh, you know, I was going to try to match that, replicate that. But I'm going to be honest with you. I, I wouldn't say I like running all that much. <laughs> I do it purely for health reasons. Like, make no mistake about it. But regardless of how I feel about running, what is required? Well, it takes some form of self-control and discipline to put on running shoes, Right? It takes discipline and self-control just to get to the treadmill or the trail. It takes self-control and discipline just to start moving the legs a little bit. Now, let's take the, the metaphor out of the realm of sports, right? If you want to start a new business, it takes self-control and discipline. If you want to achieve a goal in school, it takes self-control and discipline. Let's say you're going to read a book, and this time, this time, you're actually going to finish the book. <laughs> Right? Some of you are like, you get halfway and you're like, like to finish that book, it's going to take some amount of discipline. By the way, I am that guy. I'm, I'm in like eight different books at all times. If it takes discipline and self-control for all those activities that we do on a daily basis, how much more this journey, this spiritual journey that we're on with Christ if I could offer an observation for a moment. As Christians run their race, these two virtues have become, I think, increasingly challenging to implement. There are, there are many reasons why these virtues have become difficult to put into practice, but I'm just going to offer my opinion. There's so much vying for your attention. There's so much that's vying for your attention, which is creating one distraction after another. So much vying for your attention. It has become difficult sometimes to be 
self-controlled, to exert discipline. Further, for all the reasons why I appreciate like technology as an example, as kind of had a damning effect on a person's ability to be disciplined in self-control, right? Like, if you, I promise you, you give me five kids who have, have, who are, uh, have screen time whenever they want, however they want, and, and five kids who, where it's guarded or don't have screen time, there's, there's a very different reaction. You know who is going to be more disciplined, right? Now, you see what it takes to run a race, but Let's be honest for a moment. Exerting and implementing self-control and discipline is hard. It is hard. If you're going to run the, the Christian race, you may need to give up something. You may need to train an extra hour a day or an extra day of the week. Let's think of it this way. Let's say there's five specific activities you can do on a daily basis to help cultivate and foster endurance as you run the race as a Christian. Pray, right? That would be an activity. Read your Bible. That could be an activity. Uh, exerting some, uh, some kindness to people. Hold the door or whatever. But you know that to do those five activities, you cannot do two other activities that you love. Like sports, video games, unnecessary naps, screen time, whatever, etc. Let's say those two other activities are neutral when it comes to fostering endurance. You know you can't do everything. There's only so much time in a day. Well, how you order and prioritize your life will cultivate endurance or it will potentially sandbag your race. Depending on the choices you make, right? What trajectory are you going to go on? Your race will suffer or you will endure. And here's the reality. This is what we see in today's text. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are in the race. Like, you're, you're in it. Your feet are on the path. The moment you experience a spiritual resurrection of the soul, which is your first resurrection, Revelation 25, your life was placed onto the path with a bunch of other runners, brothers and sisters in Christ, right? When, when there's a marathon, there's not just one runner. It's filled. And as you run, there's a flashing neon sign you repeatedly run past over and over. And what does that neon sign say? It says, endure. Endure. Endure the race, Hebrews 12.1. And we're, we're exhorted, you have to endure, Hebrews 12.7. Um, as most of you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a big fan of using PowerPoint um, for pictures and illustrations during a sermon. I'm very careful to not distract from the preached word. But as I journaled my way through Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 7, I, I drew this picture. Like, <laughs> it's literally what my handwriting looks like. And I just start trying to kind of put these pieces together of what we're reading in Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 17. And so, I mean, me is the X, right? So kind of when God kind of like placed me into the race. You're in the race, Sean. Get going. We're going to see we're going to need to stay on the straight path and we need to endure. And we're going to run into this today also with discipline, but that discipline is for a purpose. This discipline from the Lord is to produce more holiness. And all of that leads to and is fixed on, what do we read in today's text? Jesus, who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. That is where we're headed. That is our trajectory. We don't run aimlessly. So, 
You need to be encouraged to run this race and stay on that straight path. I mean, you can keep the graph of the di- diagram in view as I continue to preach, and perhaps you want to add to it. Now, as it pertains specifically to our text, there are two broad questions I'm going to ask you to consider. The first question is this, and we see this in verses 1 to 3. Who do we run the race for? It's the first question. Second question, how do we run the race? Right? The first question explains the purpose of the race. Like I said, you're not supposed to run aimlessly, but you have a reason for running. And the second reason or purpose for running explains the trajectory. The second question, in another sense, explains function. Other than self-control and discipline, how are you to run? Hebrews 12, verses 4 to 17, provides us with some insight. But let's first ask that first question. Who do we run the race for? Take a look at verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, like anything that's on you, like in, in, the, in the first century, be this idea of like, okay, if you have something that is going to keep you from running, just get rid of it. Offload it off your body. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. You're going to want to underline that word. Endurance, the race that is set before us. And here's the money line. Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, We're going to talk about that. Look look at this line. Who for the joy that was set before him, joy, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So, who do we run the race for? Like, you need to know that Jesus is the Sunday school answer, but he is the Sunday school answer for a reason. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of your faith. Like, praise God, I am not the founder and perfecter of my faith. How quickly am I going to mess that up? Just give me two minutes, max, right? But Jesus is the founder and perfecter of your faith. Now, what does that even mean? Even a Sunday school answer can have some depth. I certainly do not mind the word founder, but I think the Greek word here can be translated in at least two other ways that give us better perspective of what we're reading. The first alternative translation is author. Jesus is the author of life. We read in Acts 3, verse 15. Jesus is the author of your life. An author of a book, you know, writes a storyline. The author creates the characters. The author gives specific attributes to characters. An author is in 100% control over the narrative. I have no problem declaring with joy that Jesus is the author of my life. So I don't, I don't mind that particular translation of that Greek word. Jesus is the founder and author of my life. Both make sense. The second alternative translation is beginning. I find this translation more accurate, but also interesting and helpful. You need to look to Jesus, who is the beginning and perfecter of your faith. Like using the word beginning here sounds clunky, but it's profound. We read in John 1.1, in the beginning, same Greek word, was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. 
by the way, and this is just a kind of a parenthetical statement, when you read the Greek Old Testament, the same word is used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, there might be a string that holds together Genesis 1, John 1.1, and Hebrews 12.2. So you were to look to the one, the founder and the perfecter of your faith, who was in the beginning before there was a beginning. The implication is to see that Jesus is the beginning of your faith. Jesus is the beginning of your faith, and he's going to complete and refine your faith. The second noun used to describe Jesus as perfecter. I think perfecter or finisher are good words to describe Christ in relationship to your faith. Christ is the one who ultimately perfects or finishes your faith. It's so comforting to hear from God's word, knowing what the Christian life can be like. It can be hard, right? Like that should be comforting to the soul. It is, it is at least for me. What is the point of the author of Hebrews in chapters, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3? Coming off the heels of Hebrews 11, where the great men and women of the faith were laid out one by one, we now see that Jesus is the supreme example of faith. It is good, yes, to reflect on the faith of Abraham, Moses, Samson, etc., but everyone mentioned in Hebrews 11 was flawed. They all felt short of God's grace apart from Jesus Christ. Therefore, you need to look to Christ. Why do you look to Christ instead of Moses? Because for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross. Moses did not endure a cross. Abraham did not endure a cross, but Jesus endured the cross. In another sense, Jesus shamed the shame at the cross. He shamed the shame that had been brought about by sin, and he did that through his death. Your reason for running the race is because Jesus Christ endured the cross where he died in your place the sinless Savior, Savior, in your place instead of sinful man. You run the race because your sin no longer condemns you. You're no longer condemned for your sin, right? Your sin no longer condemns you. But if you've been set free by Christ and you've been declared, Ryan read this earlier, you've been declared not guilty. That's why you're in the race. That's why you're running. Why we run with joy, which leads to my next point. It helps, this idea of joy helps explain why we run our race for Christ. At first blush, it seems like, at least to me, it seems like an audacious statement to say that Jesus endure, endured suffering and death with joy. Like, how does that land on you, Right? If the connection of joy and suffering comes across as maybe audacious is too strong of a word, but it's just kind of odd, it's sometimes it's because we don't have a biblical understanding of the true meaning of joy. I think I've used these quotes in the past going through Hebrews at least one other time, but I think they help us understand why Christ took joy in suffering. J.I. Packard uh, says this, Joy is not an accident of temperament, or an unpredictable providence. Joy is a matter of choice. 
joy is oftentimes connected with happiness, at least the way that I think our modern culture thinks about it. A person's happiness is frequently about how they feel. I'm not against feelings or emotions. I have feelings and emotions every single day, and even right now, you do too. However, it is clear that Jesus chose to have joy even while enduring horrific suffering and death. The question that came to mind while pondering that is that, how do I think Jesus felt as he was suffering? It's just kind of reshapes how you think about joy. Here's how John Calvin thought of joy. There's nothing in afflictions which ought to disturb our joy. Joy is not a mere external emotion. So what is joy? It seems to me that joy is a feeling of the soul produced by the Holy Spirit. And this kind of joy is fixed upon a righteous end. For Christ, that righteous end was to endure suffering and the cross. For the Christian, our righteous end is the person of Christ. Because Christ endured with joy, we can endure with joy in our race until we see Jesus face to face. So, I guess the application question is, are you running with joy? Right? Are you running with joy? Let's ask that second question more pointedly. How do we run this race that is before us? Like right now in your Christian life, how do you run What are some other elements of this race? As I already mentioned, uh, endurance is an element, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. But I'm sure you notice that discipline is a part of this race. And I want you to take note that what Hebrews 12 means by discipline is different from 1 Corinthians 9. Two different Greek words, actually. Quoting Proverbs 3 and Psalm 94, we read in Hebrews 12, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. This is really important. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Here's the question that dropped into my mind as I was reading this particular passage. How do I feel? How do I react? How do you feel? How do you react when you're disciplined by someone else? Right? I don't know a person who enjoys to be disciplined. I haven't found that person. I mean, growing up, I remember being disciplined by my earthly father. I don't remember a time that I enjoyed that. I just have a bad memory. I don't know, but I'm I'm fairly certain there was never that moment. I'm like, oh, that felt good. (laughs) No. And I have no doubt that my children in the moment don't like discipline from their father. It's not lost on me. It's not lost on them. But in Hebrews 12, discipline from God, we see, is a net good. It's actually a part of the race. I've heard pastors and theologians suggest that when you read the word discipline in Hebrews 12, you need to think about, not not, you don't want to think of that term, but you want to think about the word trained. The suggestion is that this passage tells us that God is training us um, in our race, right? And I'm not against this perspective, uh, sticking with the sports analogy. God is undoubtedly training us. That's Titus 2. 
but God is more than a personal fitness instructor at making sure you get 20 sit-ups in within one minute. Substituting train for discipline in this particular passage, I think, is an attempt to make this passage sound nice. It's an attempt to strip away from God anything that smacks of him being cruel. And God is not cruel, but he is good. But sometimes our definitions or sensibilities of words like cruel and good differ from how God understands it. We need to make sure that we do not make God into the image that we desire and we allow the word of God to inform our understanding of who he is and why he does what he does. We want to avoid a la carte Christianity. I want God to look like this, and so I'll take that. I don't want God to look like this, and so I won't take that. But what does verse 6 say? An act of God's love is to discipline his son or daughter. If God reproves you, if God the Holy Spirit convicts you, do not be weary. Do not be weary. The opposite, be thankful. We're thankful. God loves you. God cares for your pursuit of holiness so much that he disciplines you into holiness, into greater Christ-likeness. To further the point, the author of Hebrews compares the discipline of an earthly father to a heavenly father. Now, when we think about that, let's think about um, a discipline of an earthly father that's done rightly and, and righteously. There's a lot of bad parents out there. I'm not naive to that. Let's take a look at verse 7 and verse, through verse 9. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are legitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we, haven't, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? I mean... There's one way you can tell that a person's not a Christian. A person is not disciplined by God. Right? I mean, that's what the text says. A person is not convicted by the Holy Spirit over their sin. There's no true repentance. Uh, Not many people know this, but in my early 20s, right after the Lord saved me, um, I was a janitor at a church for two years-ish, something like that, maybe three. My actual title was custodial manager. Um, they were trying to be nice, but let's be honest, like I was scrubbing toilets and vacuuming carpet. Um, and I'm thankful for that experience, by the way. Very grateful. Because I worked at a church, I naturally got into conversations with other people on the staff. And one day I got into a, a discussion uh, with another brother about sin. And I had made the comment that when a person is convicted of sin, they need to repent. Like It's nothing you haven't heard from me from the pulpit over the years, right? When you're convicted of sin, you repent. Um, the first words of Christ, repent and believe, right? Uh, the person I was speaking with, um, he was older, and uh, I'm, you know, I'm still trying to figure out the Christian faith in the moment, but he, he rebuffed me. Um, and he said, we should never use the word conviction. I mean, I was young and dumb at the time, so I didn't press my point. But the interaction has stuck with me over 20-ish years his reaction to, I think, a theologically accurate statement, I think, results from him, at least at the time, wanting to live in a Christian world that was like unicorns and rainbows, right? 
his view of the Christian world, at least at that time, was, was very much a fantasy land. Let's not deal with the ucky stuff. Let's just focus on the positive. I'm all about positive things, but I'm also, I'm also about reality. Like in this race, we are running, and it's hard, and sin is something we have to contend with. Like that version of Christianity does not exist no matter how much a person wants to make it real. So what is true Christianity? It's this. It's two steps forward by the grace of God and one step back because God had to discipline you. That's the Christian life. Is it not? It's, it's by God's grace. You've done that thing. You made it. You had that day. You praise God for it. And then the next day you're like, oh, how could I have done that again? And you repent and you get up and you're like, I'm going to do this by God's grace. That's the Christian life. It's not unicorns and rainbows. Um, if thinking you have this thing called Christianity figured out, right? it's like, I got it all figured out. And then God humbles you. And you're like, yes, I needed that humbling because I don't have it figured out. The Christian life is realizing that you cannot respect a father who does not discipline you. Hebrews 12, verse 9. You should not respect God the Father if he does not discipline you. But praise God, he does discipline you. Which is what? Which is what? What do we mean? It is a sign of his fatherly love and affection for you. I mean, if I'm being really real, if I am not disciplined by God, I will become unhinged in one way or another. I mean, it's true. In verse 10, we read that discipline might be like short, right? But it's for your good. And again, you are disciplined so that you might share in the holiness of God. I know I've made a similar comment in another sermon in this series, but I'm constantly amazed how the book of Hebrews speaks into the particulars of our everyday life. Right? It's speaking right into our life. It's just not a bunch of truths that kind of hang out into, into the air, but it's, it comes down and it speaks directly to us. Of course, discipline, when it is rightly administered, is a loving sign of God, a loving action from God. Like, do you want to know how much I love my earthly children? Not only would I die for them, which is true, but I discipline them. That's how much I love them. And the same is with God, right? The Son of God died for you, Christian. And he loves you so much that you're a recipient of his loving discipline. Discipline is an act of love, whether it's heavenly or earthly. Verse 11 explains what we know to be true about God's discipline and shows us why God disciplines his children. And I quote, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. I think that's true, right? You discipline, you're like, oh, this is terrible. This is not pleasant. This is ter terrible. But later, but later what? It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Like as a parent, one of the acts of discipline is what you're trying to do as an earthly parent. You're training your children. It's an active training. It's active care. It's trying to get them from one end to another, right? Same thing with the Lord. 
God, godly discipline leads to good fruit. The author of Hebrews takes a moment to focus on discipline during a race because of what is produced in the Christian's life. But as you and I know, the race seems long. Followers of Jesus Christ become weary from time to time. I know I do. Now back to the subject of enduring the race. I said I was going to come back to this topic. We've already seen that Christians are encouraged to endure because Christ endured the cross. The author of Hebrews makes another appeal to endure in verses 12 to 17. Just allow, allow this imagery in verse 12 and 13 just to kind of flood your brain as you think of yourself running. Therefore, lift your drooping hands. Some of us need to hear that this morning. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. You can tell that the metaphor of the Christian life being a race is still in view. When you're at mile 15 of the marathon, your hands begin to fall. Just like the fourth quarter of those kids, right? When I'm coaching, they're like running around like this. You're like, no, keep going, keep going. You can do this. Get your hands up, get your hands up. I know your running's become sloppy, but no, let's, let's course correct here. At mile 17, your, your, your knees become weak. You've got to strengthen those knees by God's grace. And then at mile 19, you realize your running gait is downright wonky. And at some point, you might, you might wonder, can I even finish? Can I even finish? Is this at this last point when you ask that question to yourself, can I finish? You need to hear. Lift up your hands. Lift them up. By God's grace, lift them up. You need to hear. Strengthen those knees. Strengthen those knees. And this is the most important you need to hear. Hebrews 12, 12. Stay on the straight path. That is to say, stay on the path laid out for you by God. I know it's tempting to take the shortcut to the finish line, but that will not do. I know there are times when there's a desire to take the path of least resistance, but that is actually the unfaithful past. Like, do not turn away from God. Do not turn away from his blood-bought covenant. Do not turn to other gods, verse 14, but strive. Strive to be at peace with the people around you, we read. Pursue holiness. And this point from verse 15 is critical. One of the quickest ways to get off the straight path is bitterness. When a person allows bitterness to take root into the heart, your race comes to a standstill. I'm not, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but if I want to ask, have you experienced that in your life? Or bitterness has done that to you? I'm guessing some of you, maybe all, have experienced that. You become bitter and all of a sudden it's like, what am I even running for? That's why we have this warning. Do not let bitterness take root. Do you want to know who became bitter? Esau. When I first read this text, 
just first blush reading, I think probably Monday, I was thinking to myself, what does Esau have to do with this? We had all these examples of great men and women of the faith in Hebrews 11, and now it's like the author of Hebrews is trying to shoehorn in Esau. Like, what's that all about? Well, I think the author of Hebrews ends with this section with this negative example, which also does serve as a warning. We read in Genesis 25 that in desperation, in a touch of manipulation by Jacob, his brother, Esau, the oldest brother, sold his birthright to his younger brother for some bread and lentil soup. Now, why does the author of Hebrews like open up his Bible and he just kind of says, all right, guys, I'm going to Genesis 25 and I'm going to talk about Esau. Like, why does he do that? Why does he go there? What is being implied? We need to back up for a moment to see what's going on. What has been the clarion call for the followers of Jesus Christ throughout the entire book of Hebrews? At least one of them, one of the major ones. Through Christ, what you need to do is remember the promises of God. That's been the clarion call. Remember the promises of God. Trust in the promises of God. Esau did not trust in the promises of God. And the consequences of his unbelief was bitterness. Even when Esau pleaded with his father Isaac for the blessing of hope and prosperity, he did not receive it. Once again, there's more to unpack. But I hope you see how this metaphor running, this race, this marathon holds the passage together. God has entered your name into the race. God even paid the fee. He paid the fee. You're in the race. He paid the fee through the blood of Christ. But you're more than the number on your jersey to God. You are a son or daughter. Because you are a son or daughter of the living God, he is with you every step of the race. With your eyes fixed upon Christ, the beginning and the perfecter of your faith, God causes you to endure through the power of the Holy Spirit. He does this by disciplining you to holiness, a sign of his fatherly love. And there is a finish line to your race. There is a finish line. There will be a day when you will hear from the Father. Many of you know this line, and it is so good. And we look forward to hearing this. Well done, good and faithful servant. Matthew 25. Man. Do you look forward to hearing those words? I do. But until that day, until that day, you strive by the grace of God for the glory of God. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.